Hello and welcome to Genius Little Minds, the podcast about childhood mental health from the perspective of a licensed mental health professional. I'm Dr. Madeline Vieira, a clinical child psychologist specializing in infant mental health and childhood anxiety disorders. I'm also a mother of three girls, ages six, four, and two and a half, so I can personally relate to a lot of the struggles parents go through. Raising healthy children is important. So, on each episode of Genius Little Minds, we'll dive into an aspect of childhood mental health. I'm here to shine a light on the tough issues that families like you are facing every day. Things like childhood mood disorders, anxiety, tricky family dynamics, and more. I'll guide you through the various aspects of children's mental health so you not only understand your child better, but also feel empowered as a parent to make decisions and help them seek treatment if it's needed. My mission is to demystify childhood mental health issues so you can connect with your child better and help them lead a healthy, happy life. Throughout the podcast, I'll help you understand the signs, symptoms, and treatments for various childhood psychological disorders. We'll talk about how you can best support your child in both school and at home, and how to find professional help if needed. Together, we'll navigate tough topics like infant attachment, toddler tantrums, signs of anxiety, ADHD, and childhood depression, intrusive thoughts or obsessive behaviors, and so much more. So whether you're having trouble bonding with your newborn or you have an older child displaying behavioral difficulties, this podcast is for you. I work with infants and children with a wide range of mental health concerns. If you gain one thing from this podcast, it's that you are not alone. Thousands of families struggle with the same things that you do. And the good news is, help is available. I believe that with the right information, you can make empowered decisions for your family. Last time, we talked about what an anxiety disorder is and why kids develop them. If you missed part one of this two-part series on childhood anxiety, make sure to go back and have a listen. If your kid is constantly imagining worst-case scenarios, playing alone on the playground, or freaking out when you need to leave the house, then that episode is for you. Today, we'll continue with the topic of childhood anxiety. As a childhood anxiety specialist, I see a lot of scared, worried kids coming into my practice. Raise your hand if your child can talk, but just won't in certain settings, is afraid of way more than just the dark, has to do the same rituals every day in order to feel okay, or has upsetting nightmares. We'll cover all of this and more in today's episode. To kick the episode off, let's talk about selective mutism. Children and teens with selective mutism are able to speak, and they do typically around people they feel safe with or in places they feel comfortable. But in other settings, they literally go mute. Picture this. You're in the grocery store. Your child is being super loud, singing, running up and down the aisles, doing kid stuff. But then a stranger talks to them, and they freeze. They withdraw. They avoid the social interaction, and then they literally go mute. Their mutism is a way to avoid the anxiety they're feeling. They feel burdened by the stranger's expectations that they should behave a certain way. 
they're uncomfortable, and at this point, they probably just want to go home. Selective mutism is different from elective total mutism or traumatic mutism because your child can talk, but they just won't. According to the Selective Mutism Center, most children with selective mutism have a genetic predisposition to anxiety, meaning they inherited their anxious tendencies from one or more members of their family. It's estimated that less than 1% of children in the United States suffer from elective mutism. But more than 90% of children with this disorder also have social anxiety. There's no evidence that selective mutism is related to neglect or trauma, so you can stop holding your breath now. Don't worry, your child's selective mutism is not your fault. Most children are diagnosed with selective mutism between the ages of 3 and 8 years. Children with this disorder were often severely anxious in social situations as infants and toddlers, and they also have a history of separation anxiety. Selective mutism can be puzzling. At home, your child could be a total chatterbox. But when a stranger talks to them, they get a deer-in-a-headlights look. They might gesture instead of speaking, pointing, nodding, using facial expressions. All of these are signs of selective mutism. And then they may not just do this with strangers. Children with this disorder are often misdiagnosed with autism, oppositional defiance disorder, or learning disorders. So it's important they receive a proper evaluation and treatment so their problems don't persist. Treatment for selective mutism looks a little different than treatments for the other anxiety disorders, so I'm going to talk about it here instead of moving on. If your child is diagnosed with selective mutism, you'll want to look for someone who specializes in SCAT, or Social Communication Anxiety Therapy. It's been found to significantly improve children's ability to speak in school and other settings in less than four months' time. Behavioral therapy can also be used to treat this disorder, and play therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy can also be effective. These two techniques will be addressed later in the treatment portion of the podcast, so stay tuned for that. Now, let's talk about specific phobias. It's completely normal for kids to feel afraid from time to time. Even as adults, we get scared. Right now, my four-year-old daughter is in this stage where she's afraid of the dark. Sometimes she even thinks she sees scary animals and shadows on the wall. Maybe your child has experienced something similar. A lot of kids are afraid of the dark. It's a common age-appropriate phobia. The theta brainwave is responsible for encouraging creativity and fantasizing. So, as you're probably well aware, kids' imaginations can run wild at nighttime. However, when a child's fear of the dark is no longer age-appropriate and starts to affect their quality of life, they might be suffering from a specific phobia and help might be needed. There are two main categories of phobias. Simple phobias, like being afraid of the dark, and complex phobias, like social phobia, which I talked about in part one of this series on anxiety. Simple phobias usually develop in early childhood, between the ages of 4 and 8 years, while complex phobias develop in adolescence or are created by traces of early childhood experiences. Simple phobias are fears about specific things, objects, animals, or activities. Common examples include arachnophobia, a fear of spiders, xenophobia, fear of dogs, astrophobia, fear of thunder and lightning, and trypanophobia, the fear of needles, 
The list goes on and on. There are a lot of phobias. Simple phobias may or may not run in families. If a child witnesses you having a negative reaction or panic attack when you see, say, a spider, then they themselves may develop arachnophobia, a fear of spiders. Your child might have mild anxiety when confronted with the thing that they fear. Maybe they run down the hall into your bedroom during a thunderstorm or jump into your arms when a dog is nearby. But they may have a severe reaction like a panic attack. This can be really painful to witness as a parent. You just want to scoop your child up in your arms and tell them everything will be okay. Your child may not have even had a bad experience with the thing that they fear. Sometimes they're just afraid of it. This can be hard to understand, but try to react compassionately. Your kindness and encouragement will go a long way when they learn to face their fears. Complex phobias tend to be more debilitating than simple phobias because they often involve the fear of a specific circumstance or situation. Agoraphobia, the fear of being in a situation that's hard to get out of or where help won't come if it's needed, is a complex phobia. The exact causes of agoraphobia and sociophobia are unknown. Some believe that genetic traits, brain chemistry, and life experiences may all play a part in the development of complex phobias. Usually kids with fears within a normal range can be calmed by adults. But when kids have phobias, they experience really intense, extreme, and longer-lasting fear of a specific thing. And then they avoid that thing at all costs. It becomes hard to go about daily life and routines. Nothing is soothing. The fear is big and intense and scary. Here are a few questions to ask yourself. Has your child been afraid of something specific for six months or longer? Do they avoid this thing at all costs? Is the fear so extreme it makes it hard for them to do daily activities or have friends? Are they hard to soothe? If you answer yes to these questions, then your child may be suffering from a phobia. It's estimated up to 9.2% of children and teens have some kind of phobia. You might even have a few as an adult. I know personally I have a fear of heights. I get weak in the knees or feel as if I might fall over when I'm looking out of the window of a skyscraper or, or when I cross over a bridge. This fear hasn't prevented me from trying bungee jumping or skydiving though, but those will definitely remain one-off experiences only. Exposure therapy is primarily used to treat phobias and is something I use in my own practice. It has also been proven to be effective and we'll cover this among other CBT types in the treatment portion of this podcast. Next, let's talk about OCD. You've probably heard someone say, I'm so OCD about keeping my house clean or keeping my closet organized. But the truth is, OCD can be a painful thing to endure, like any mental health disorder. And it can present in children. About 2 to 3% of children and teens struggle with obsessive compulsive disorder, more commonly known as OCD. Boys are two times more likely to have OCD than girls. And the average age of onset for boys is between the ages of 9 and 11 years, while for girls, between 11 and 13. Younger children can also suffer from OCD, and as much as 20% of children and teens with OCD have a family member who has it. So what exactly is OCD? And how does it present in children? OCD has three main components. Obsessions, 
compulsions, and the resulting emotions. Obsessions are the intrusive, often distressing thoughts or images a person with OCD experiences. For example, maybe your child is especially concerned about germs, being dirty, or getting sick. It's possible they need things to be arranged just right. I know what you're thinking. Just because you have your pantry organized alphabetically with labeled baskets doesn't necessarily mean you have OCD. Although it's true, as I mentioned before, the rate of OCD in children is higher if a family member has OCD. Compulsions are the repeated rituals someone with OCD feels driven to perform. And these rituals are an attempt to alleviate or prevent the distress that their obsessions cause. Compulsions can look like touching or tapping something a certain number of times, or repeating words or phrases, washing or cleaning things excessively, or arranging things over and over. Then there's the feelings. Oh, the intense feelings of anxiety and distress the obsession causes. It's difficult because if your child does suffer from OCD, they might get upset if they can't perform a ritual, or they might try to involve you in one. They might not even know they're trying to involve you in a ritual. This can look like seeking your reassurance over and over or asking you to do something a certain number of times. Rituals and obsessive thoughts are actually a normal part of your child's development to a certain degree. But when OCD is present, the obsessive thoughts are distressing and the compulsions are so frequent, they interfere with daily life and activities. I can hear you thinking, Wait a minute, I thought children thrived off of routines. Isn't it good my child has a bedtime routine? To some degree, yes. Sometimes rituals are appropriate, like a morning routine to get dressed or to get ready for school. school age children will use rituals in athletics and team games, for example, to socialize and develop bonds with one another. Teens might develop a ritual around collecting objects like a stamp or sneaker collection. All of these examples are within a normal developmental range. But when the rituals multiply and take on a lot of time and energy, that's when there's cause for worry. If it's hard for your child to focus in school, enjoy time with friends, relax, or even sleep because they have obsessions and compulsions, then it's probably time to seek treatment. OCD can cause so much confusion or shame that your child may try to hide it from you. Or maybe they've already been hiding it. Show your child love and support. Seek help from a professional. Point out what you've noticed and let your child know there's a name for what they're going through. It will feel a lot less scary when they know they have you by their side. The last anxiety disorder we'll talk about today is PTSD. When children witness or experience severe stress, they may develop post-traumatic stress disorder, more commonly known as PTSD. This is different from other childhood anxiety disorders in that it's caused by a specific traumatic event, such as a natural disaster, an invasive medical procedure, a car crash, a fire, or maybe physical abuse. Approximately 14 to 43% of girls and boys will go through at least one trauma. And of the children and teens who've experienced a trauma, 3 to 15% of girls will develop PTSD, compared to 1 to 6% of boys. According to the UK National Health Service, in most cases, PTSD symptoms develop during the first month after a traumatic event. 
It's important to note that sometimes children who have experienced traumatic stress may appear to have symptoms of ADHD. They might fidget, be restless, have trouble staying organized, or have difficulties paying attention. But PTSD is very different from ADHD. Children with PTSD might have upsetting nightmares or problems sleeping, become very upset when reminded of the traumatic event, relive the trauma over and over, have intense fear or sadness, and avoid people and places that are associated with a traumatic event. A child with PTSD may also complain of headaches or stomach aches, and they may reenact the traumatic event repeatedly through play. I know you just want to make your child's pain go away. Every parent does. With treatment, healing is possible. Children are resilient. They can and do recover from traumatic events. Providing a supportive and safe environment is critical to their recovery, as is access to treatments that are trauma-informed. If your child has witnessed or experienced a traumatic event, you can help them get through it. Your love, patience, and reassurance will make all the difference. A child who has experienced a traumatic event needs to feel safe. Trauma-focused therapy can be really helpful for children with PTSD. This type of treatment will re-establish safety and help your child redevelop their emotional, psychological, relational, and physical senses of safety. It will also help your child learn to identify triggers and explore the memories and feelings related to the trauma without re-traumatizing them. Trauma-informed treatment will help your child develop healthy coping skills and decrease the traumatic stress symptoms like anxiety, depression, dissociation, flashbacks, or, or even nightmares. Trauma-informed therapy is also designed to help your child regain power and control over the narrative of his or her story. As they process the event, over time, they learn to integrate their experiences. Now that you have an overview of childhood anxiety disorders, let's talk about treatment options. There are a few types of treatments out there. Family therapy, medication, psychoanalysis, the list goes on. Like anything in life, there are pros and cons to each. Therapy is safe and non-invasive, but it does require a medium to long-term commitment of weekly sessions, which can range from a few months to over a year of treatment, depending on the severity of the symptoms. Children and families in psychotherapy are expected to make behavioral changes in order for the therapy to be effective. And lasting change doesn't happen overnight. Generally speaking, treatment for children five and under will involve parent training on behavior management interventions, while treatment for children in six and up will involve working with the children directly. There are many different types of therapy, but the World Health Organization, National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, and the British Columbia Medical Services Commission all recommend cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT for short, as an appropriate treatment for childhood anxiety disorders. And it's what I use in my own practice, so that's what we'll be focusing on in just a minute. But first, I want to talk about medication. There are mixed opinions on the effectiveness and safety of using medications like SRIs on children. But Using medication to treat childhood mental health disorders is becoming more and more common. A comprehensive treatment plan may include medication, but it's always important to consider the risks. 
If you missed my first podcast episode, I talk about some of the questions you should ask your child's pediatrician before putting them on medication. So make sure to check that out. One of the best parts of my job is that I get to see children overcome and learn to manage their mental health concerns over time. Seeing treatment modalities work and reduce the severity of symptoms is so rewarding. So today we're going to focus on CBT and graded exposure therapy since most anxiety disorders benefit from these evidence-based treatments and they're what I use in my own practice. So what is CBT? Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, CBT for short, is a form of talk therapy based on the idea that unhelpful thought patterns and behaviors can be changed into more realistic thoughts, which in turn has a positive effect on feelings and behavior. It's usually the first line of treatment for anxiety disorders, though in some cases medication is also useful. You know how sometimes you think a mean thought about yourself and you end up hurting your own feelings? For example, you're late to pick up your kid from school one time and you think, I'm a terrible parent, I never get anything right. And then you feel awful and guilty and your kids annoy you a bit more than usual. So you snap at them and then you start the I'm terrible loop all over again. CBT helps interrupt that loop. With CBT, children learn to recognize their thought patterns. They identify where and when those patterns help and where they hurt. In other words, CBT teaches children that how we think and act affects how we feel. Through CBT worksheets and exercises, your child will learn how to calm their mind, relax their body, and challenge the anxious thoughts that give them so much distress. With my clients, I use graded exposure as part of CBT, a stepladder approach, so your child slowly and systematically faces his fears and reduces the symptoms of his anxiety. I also talk about this approach in my new book series called I'm Afraid. When a child suffers from OCD, the CBT therapy of choice is Exposure Response Prevention, or ERP. This helps children face their fears while refraining from compulsive behaviors. My goal with CBT and graded exposure therapy is of course to help children face their fears, but the benefits they get from these methods are far greater than just that. With these treatments, I often find that over time, children are empowered and leave the therapy room feeling more confident and more in control. CBT can be used during play therapy, where toys, arts and crafts or puppets are used to help a child verbalize their problems and come to solutions. It can be used in individual psychotherapy sessions, family sessions or in group therapy. Research shows that up to 75% of children and adolescents with anxiety disorders who were treated with CBT had a significant decrease in their symptoms following treatment. So, now that you're armed with lots of information about childhood anxiety disorders and their treatment, you're ready to tackle next steps. Finding a therapist who specializes in anxiety disorders can be extremely helpful. Early detection and intervention can help reduce the severity of symptoms and improve your child's quality of life. The best thing you can do is seek out professional help sooner rather than later. Licensed mental health professionals specializing in CBT and graded exposure therapy are a great place to start. 
For the last part of today's podcast, we'll have a Q&A so you can hear from parents just like you. Hi, this is Jordan from Sydney, Australia. Um, My four-year-old daughter frequently complains of headaches and stomach aches. Um, We've taken her to the doctor and they can't seem to find anything medically wrong with her. She, um, She feels like she has to pee a lot and gets embarrassed having to ask to go to the toilet frequently at school. And sometimes she doesn't want to go to school at all. I obviously don't want to make her go to school if she's sick, but the doctor says she's healthy. Is something else going on? What should we do? Thanks. Thanks for calling in, Jordan. It was a great first step to take her to your family doctor to rule out a physical cause to her symptoms. Now it is time to examine her mental health. Your next step should be reaching out to a psychologist to schedule a consultation for your daughter. A mental health professional will talk with you both to fully understand your daughter's symptoms and to find out where they are stemming from. There could be various things going on for your daughter. It would be good to start by asking her and her teacher if any major changes have happened at school lately. Does she have a new teacher or helper in the classroom? Did one of her close friends move away? Are her classmates not being kind to her? Change can be very difficult for some children at this age and they may need extra support to work through that phase. It also could be helpful to think back on when her symptoms started. Did they start after a long break from school, such as a summer or winter vacation? The transition back to school after a long break is often hard for young children. The time it takes to adjust back to the routine of school varies for each child, but can last several weeks or even months. Some children do need extra support to make this adjustment. One explanation for why your daughter is not talking and answering questions at school may be because she's struggling with selective mutism. Selective mutism renders children physically unable to speak in certain social situations. They might be comfortable speaking to close relatives, such as parents, siblings, and their best friend, but won't speak to others. Approximately 90% of children with selective mutism also suffer from social anxiety. Your daughter refusing to go to school may show that she has social or separation anxiety. Social anxiety involves intense fear of being embarrassed or humiliated in front of others. Anxiety before going into social situations and physical symptoms such as sweating, trembling, and a shaky voice. Separation anxiety has many of the same anxiety-related symptoms, but the anxiety isn't caused by all of the people in a social situation and instead by having to leave their family or caregiver. Performance anxiety is another possibility, but would be more common in older children. You may be able to ask your child what is going on for her to better understand what is troubling her. Ask your child, have you been worried about talking in front of everyone at school? Or does leaving mommy or daddy make you nervous? These questions may help you understand what the root of her anxiety is. A mental health professional will be able to best pinpoint what your daughter might need help with. Before your appointment, prepare your daughter with what to expect and what questions the psychologist may ask. Reminder that this appointment is a safe space to share how she's feeling and what she's struggling with. Know that you may have to take your daughter a couple of times before she feels comfortable enough to open up. In the meantime, you may want to have a conversation with your child's teacher about how to ease her anxiety 
ask if there's a way she could silently let the teacher know that she needs to use the bathroom, for example. Discuss other ways that she could answer any questions instead of verbally saying the answer out loud. It will be very important to keep your daughter's teacher informed throughout the process of therapy so that she has as much support as possible. You may also want to gently expose your daughter to other social settings outside of school to see if she has the same reaction. This could be some form of childcare, like a daycare or with a babysitter, or at an organized fun activity such as swimming lessons or an art class. The social setting of those activities may help her cope better in school. Or if she reacts in the same way, that information will be helpful in getting her the treatment that she needs. Hi, I'm Angela from Oxford, UK. I have a two-year-old daughter who I'd love to teach how to swim. But she doesn't like swim lessons, or bath time actually, because she doesn't like being in the water. She says it gets in her eyes, she feels like it's messy, she just doesn't like it. And I'm really anxious for her to learn how to swim, so we can safely go to pools, water parks, etc. this summer. I don't want to force her to go swimming, but I'd like her to get over this thing she has with water. Is this anxiety, or is it a personality thing? How should I handle it? I want to be gentle but firm, because learning to swim is something she's got to do. Thank you. Hi Angela, thanks for your question. I know pools and swimming can be such fun activities in the warm summer months, so I understand your desire for your daughter to be more comfortable in the water. Her feelings about water could be caused by an anxiety disorder, or she could simply not enjoy water activities. Determining which is the case will take examining how anxious she seems around water. It is normal for children to feel some fear around swimming pools initially, because it is a new experience. It is also perfectly normal for children to not always enjoy being in the water, because, for example, they would rather be playing in the sand at the park, although there are plenty of kids who don't like the sensation of sand, or they might prefer making some art at home, etc. Continued intense anxiety about water, though, in multiple settings, like the pool and bathtub, may be a sign of a mental health disorder that needs to be addressed. There are a few things that could be going on with your daughter. It sounds like you have already given her many opportunities to grow accustomed to water and pools. Since those opportunities have not changed her feelings about water, your daughter may be suffering from a specific phobia in relation to water. Specific phobias are typically treated with exposure therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. If you think that her discomfort in relation to the feeling of water is excessive, persistent, or inconquerable, it may be best to seek out professional help and try therapy treatments. However, as you don't mention that she actually fears water, but instead say that she doesn't like the water getting into her eyes and she feels like it's messy, she might just not like the sensation of water on her skin, which could mean she's a sensory-sensitive child and possibly have a sensory processing disorder, also called SPD. It would be helpful to ask her, does water make you feel scared or do you just not like how it feels? If she replies that she doesn't like how it feels, it may be SPD. With SPD, she will likely also be sensitive to other textures 
some children with SPD are sensitive to light, find certain fabrics like cotton itchy, or they're bothered by the tags in their clothes. Observe your daughter and when she seems uncomfortable, ask her, is your shirt bothering you? Or is this light hurting your eyes? Even more generally, what is making you uncomfortable? How can I help you? The treatment for SPD is a bit different than a specific phobia, but it would also need to be handled by a psychologist. Sensory integration therapy is the main treatment method for SPD. This treatment method challenges the child in a fun and playful way to interact with the sensory experiences that they don't enjoy. The goal is to teach them to better respond to sensory input by increasing their frustration tolerance. If you don't think that therapy is necessary, continue to give her opportunities to enjoy playing in the water. Try to incorporate other games and activities that she enjoys into her time playing in the water. Maybe she loves playing catch, so you play catch with her in the pool. Or maybe she loves playing pat a cake, so you play that with her in the water. Make the situations low stress and without pressure. And she may slowly come around and realize that water can be fun. Hi, uh, I'm Danielle from San Diego, California. Um, I have a three-year-old son who gets really upset when he spills something on his clothes. I mean, even if it's just like water or juice, he freaks out and asks me to take off whatever he's wearing that he spilled on. And um, I'm, a, I'm a pretty neat person. You know, I, I like to keep the house and my clothes clean, but um, I'm worried that I'm teaching my son to be afraid to get messy. Uh, I mean, I, I, I do encourage him to play messily and tell him that it's okay to get, you know, uh, paint, dirt, food, you know, whatever on his hands. So, um, I don't, why is he so anxious about spilling on himself? I mean, normally I just cave in and let him change his clothes if there's a spill, but, uh, I don't know, is that the right thing to do? Thanks for your question, Danielle. I'm happy to give you some tips. Your son may be struggling with the sensory input that he gets when his shirt is wet. Think about when your clothes get wet. They cling to you. It's uncomfortable. You would probably want to change. He's experiencing the same thing. This would be perfectly normal if, for example, your son's shirt is dripping wet after he ran through the water sprinklers in the garden. But if it's a small spill, like some water or juice at snack time, getting changed seems disproportionate to the situation. The concern also lies in how upset he gets when this happens. If a slightly wet shirt makes him anxious, this is a red flag. You could try modeling for him what he should feel and do when he spills. Yes, I really mean spill your drink on your shirt, then calmly say, oh no, I spilled some water. Oops, ah, it'll dry soon. Or if it's juice, wipe it off with a clean cloth. Then with a smile on your face, continue whatever you were doing just before. Once dry, you can point out to your son, see that water spill is all gone. My shirt is all dry now. It may seem silly, but children learn by seeing. So modeling a more appropriate reaction based on the severity of the circumstance at hand is important. If he simply does not know how to react to the situation, this exercise will help him learn. If his anxiety about spills continues to be high or he starts to have anxiety in other areas, it may be good to have him evaluated for sensory processing disorder or SPD and also obsessive compulsive disorder 
the latter especially, if you've noticed your son expressing any obsessive thoughts prior to him wanting to get changed, such as, I must get changed now or I will be covered in germs and get sick. OCD is often depicted as simply being a really organized or clean person with something specific. But OCD actually involves intense rituals and obsessive thoughts. It is when, for example, the need to be clean starts interfering with daily activities. The symptoms of OCD or a sensory processing disorder will need treatment by a professional to be alleviated. It is great of you to continue to offer him sensory experiences and messy play. Keep doing that. This may just be a phase that he will grow out of and these sensory experiences will help him get there. Remain observant of his emotions and behaviors and follow your gut instinct if you think he needs extra mental health support. In today's episode, we covered a lot of ground on childhood anxiety disorders and their treatments. Here are three key points to remember. One, symptoms of different mental health concerns can sometimes overlap. So be sure to seek professional evaluation and treatment for your child to get an accurate diagnosis. Two, your child may try to hide their anxiety from you due to shame, fear, or just not knowing what's going on in their own body and brain. Cultivate a sense of safety so they can confide in you. Three, seek out someone who specializes in CBT and graded exposure therapy. To learn more about the topics we cover today, pre-order my Anxiety Disorder Therapeutic Book Series for Children. Through storytelling and beautiful illustrations, your child will learn to overcome the harmful habits and patterns they've developed while struggling with their fears. Pre-order Sophia Swan is Afraid of Water, Chloe Kitten is Afraid of Germs, Darcy Deer is Afraid to Talk Sometimes, or even all six books for your anxious child today. You can pre-order them at www.drmadelinevera.com forward slash books forward slash I'm afraid. If anxiety interferes with your child's life, please consult a mental health professional. Working in collaboration with a professional and letting your child know that you're confident he will be successful will give your child a stronger foundation and allow him to become his own champion fear fighter. I hope you enjoyed this two-part series on childhood anxiety disorders. Stay tuned because on the next episode, we'll continue our discussion on childhood mental health by talking about depression, looking at symptoms, risk factors, trends, treatment options, and more. We'll see you next time. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode.